Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Take, for example, two scenarios. Scenario number one, a wife has, and over the course of a long relationship with her husband, she has a one-night stand. Now she's racked with guilt, and she thinks that she should tell her husband the truth, even though she recognizes he may not be able to psychologically handle it, that it might just overwhelm them, it might destroy their relationship, harm their family in all these different ways, etc., etc. My way of thinking, she actually has a moral obligation to keep that a secret, as long as it doesn't endanger the relationship, as long as she can recognize that she can process her way through it and, and it's not going to ultimately undermine the love that they have. On the other hand, same scenario, but she finds herself at the one-night stand, turns into a year-long affair, and she finds she's falling in love with this other person, or she's fallen in love with this other person. Now I would argue that compassion, that care, requires truthfulness, even though telling the truth in that circumstance might be much more difficult than telling the truth in the former circumstance, which might have just been a kind of throat-clearing or conscience-clearing. Everything is deception. The question is whether to seek the least amount of deception or the mean, or to seek out the highest. The unsettling words of German novelist Frank Kafka. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to reflect on the nature of love and ask, why do we lie to the ones we love? This evening, I've got two hugely entertaining and stimulating writers for you to meet. One a Frenchman, the other a Canadian. Philosopher and novelist and essayist Clancy Martin tells me why insisting too much on transparency and the truth and you will never be able to love. And scholar, author and translator T. Jefferson Klein talks swashbuckling historical fiction at its best. The Fortunes of France series by Robert Merle set in lusty, dirty France in the 16th century. Think Game of Thrones, Tudor style. This is a show about truth and meaning, action and adventure, warfare, vengeance and the I forgot lie. But first, is it possible to love without lying? In his latest book, Love and Lies, philosopher, novelist and essayist Dr Clancy Martin writes, We might suggest that our ordinary friendships don't tend to intrude into our sexual consciousness. Our emotional affairs, by contrast, always have the dangerous, seductive aroma of the erotic clouding them. The transition from friendship to emotional intimacy to be the must-be-revealed important truth of the emotional affair. Then might that not be so very different from the important truth of the real affair? The only difference may be that what is about to happen hasn't physically happened yet. How long might we cling to precisely that self-deceptive fact that nothing happened, just because nothing physically happened? The purpose of clinging to that belief is obvious. To persuade ourselves that our partners need not, indeed should not, for their own sakes, know about this relationship, which is, after all, really just a friendship. Dr Clancy Martin is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Missouri, Kansas City and he is also Professor of Business Ethics at the Block School of Management. Clancy's notable reads include How to Sell, Above the Bottom Line, 
Morality in the Good Life and the Philosophy of Deception. Well, Clancy's latest book, Love and Lies and Why You Can't Have One Without the Other, has just been published by Harville Secker. And I have to say, is quite the eye-opener, where Clancy entertainingly unpacks the prevalence of deceit in contemporary society, or the idiom, ask me no questions and I will tell you no lies. Well, I had the pleasure of talking to Clancy during the week. I asked Clancy whether he agreed with the great Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard that subjectivity is truth. I do think that um, both Kierkegaard and Nietzsche are correct. Kierkegaard says that subjectivity is truth, and then we have to figure out what he intends by that. And Nietzsche, with his famous claim that truth is really just a matter of perspective, and there, there are no facts, there are only perspectives. I think these are very importantly similar claims. And what I think they're both talking about is the question of meaning. That is, when we're talking about what you might call objective truth, the truth, say, that your coffee cup is sitting on the table or the truth that the sun is shining. These turn out for human beings to be um, matters of relative indifference compared to the kinds of truths that really determine the lives that we lead, whether we're unhappy or happy, what we value and what we don't value, the, the trajectory of how we make our way through our particular lives. All those kinds of truths are informed by um, our perceptions, our particular histories, what Sartre called our facticity, and the relationships we have. And those are where we find our meaning. Once we recognize that, we realize that we've been misled by this notion that truth for us is as simple as the question of whether your coffee cup is on the table. And that truth is actually much, much more complicated than that. So when you ask yourself, for just to take an easy example, when you ask yourself what superficially seems like a naive question, well, does my partner love me? And you think, oh, of course he does, or of course she does. But then you start thinking about it in a more subtle way, and you think, well, can I consistently always every day say with that kind of coffee cup sitting on the table, objective truth that I love my partner. And you say, well, it's more complicated than that. You know, what we mean when we say that you love someone is not the same kind of thing we mean as when we say the sun is shining. It's an expression of an attitude, which once you start talking about the expression of an attitude, you're in this realm of subjective truth, a very, very different thing than objective truth because it involves your will, it involves your choice, it includes a recognition of the fact that it's not like an on switch or an off switch. It admits of degrees, it admits of some beliefs which you think are really well-grounded and some beliefs which you think might not have any grounding at all, that you're just kind of making it up. It involves stories we tell. And it might also include a commitment to completely false beliefs for sustained periods of time in order to be able to maintain that larger attitude. Can I ask you, do you think there can ever be a morally legitimate reason to lie? And as such then that maybe lying is not totally a sign of moral weakness? Or do you think that's a bit lofty, a bit woolly and a bit of a cop-out? On the contrary, I think there are many, many morally legitimate reasons to lie. I think it is often the case that compassion and sort of a demand for naive honesty or naive truthfulness 
are at loggerheads with one another. So very often it might be the case that when someone asks for an assessment of their character, their appearance, who knows how many different kinds of things they may be. This could be a friend, a lover, a child. One might, out of compassion or out of a recognition of what in the Buddhist tradition we call skillful means, that is, out of some kind of pedagogical recognition, uh, trying to help this person overcome something, you would need to speak a falsehood so that they could get to where they needed to be. I think that we are morally required to lie to ourselves about all sorts of things in order to get ourselves through the day, in order to make ourselves the kind of caring, loving people that we believe we ought to be. You know, Charlie Bukowski once said that the thought of having to brush his teeth and tie his shoelaces every morning was enough to make any rational human being kill himself. And uh, we, we see the same kind of claim repeated by Camus and William James, a whole bunch of thinkers. These are examples of why you must lie to yourself. You are morally required. If you think it is morally important to be be alive at all, then you would say that you are morally required to lie to yourself out of compassion, out of a kind of belief in the value of living that certainly consistently trumps the need for some kind of naked truthfulness or honesty. I think that the rather naive and dangerous and misleading equation of truthfulness with goodness has done much more harm in the world than uh, people recognize. Very often we tell the truth out of cruelty, not out of compassion. And if we had to make a choice between love and compassion and caring and truthfulness and honesty, to my way of thinking about moral goodness, we should always go with love, compassion, and caring. Now, that's not to say that it might not often be the compassionate, the caring thing to tell the truth. Take, for example, two scenarios. Scenario number one, a wife has, in, over the course of a long relationship with her husband, she has a one-night stand. Now, she's racked with guilt, and she thinks that she should tell her husband the truth, even though she recognizes he may not be able to psychologically handle it, that it might just overwhelm them, it might destroy their relationship, harm their family in all these different ways, et cetera, et cetera. My way of thinking, she actually has a moral obligation to keep that a secret, as long as it doesn't endanger the relationship, as long as she can recognize that she can process her way through it, and, and it's not going to ultimately undermine the love that they have. On the other hand, same scenario but she finds herself at the one-night stand, turns into a year-long affair, and she finds she's falling in love with this other person, or she's fallen in love with this other person. Now I would argue that compassion, that care, requires truthfulness, even though telling the truth in that circumstance might be much more difficult than telling the truth in the former circumstance, which might have just been a kind of throat-clearing or conscience-clearing. It's not straightforward in any way. It's no. as, you, as you say, it's complex. But it struck me as I was going through the book that we lie most to the people we love, whether it's our children, whether it's our parents, our brothers and sisters, our friends, our Absolutely. lovers. And I, you referenced that we lie at least three times every 10 minutes. I was really surprised at that. But then yeah, again, we possibly it struck me that we possibly lie about our lying in some way. Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the first steps towards having a healthier relationship with ourselves and with the people around us is trying to sort of stop naively lying about our lying and lying to ourselves about our self-perceptions. Absolutely. I think that what 
we should be more watchful of than worrying so much about are we always being told the truth or are we always telling the truth, which is, which is a mistaken way of approaching these questions, I think, is to be careful, to be more careful in our speech, to be more aware of what we're saying, and also more aware, perhaps, of what we're communicating by what we keep secret, what we don't say. Because, again, we're being very naive and um, sort of both cruel to ourselves and cruel to the people we love if we suppose that we are only communicating when we speak. Speak, that we are only being truthful or untruthful when we actually say something. That's not the case at all. You know, we are constantly communicating in all these different ways, whether or not we are speaking. And we can be either deceptive or truthful. We can either be uncaring or caring in all these different ways that we communicate. And I think you're exactly right. Two things that you said, Susan, that are very important. First of all, yes, we all lie constantly, whether we acknowledge it or not, both to ourselves and to others. And we, we should recognize that fact and kind of proceed with that knowledge in mind. So get rid of this this naive, unhealthy notion that we have that we're always telling the truth and that people are always telling the truth to us. It's just not helpful for us to believe that particular falsehood. Second, it's not trivial that we lie most to the people we love, and that's not an indictment of our love relationships. What that's an indictment of is this idea that the love depends on transparency, the love depends on truth, when in fact just the opposite is the case. It's relatively easy to tell the truth to a stranger because you don't care whether or not you're hurting that person's feelings. It can be very difficult and not always desirable to tell the truth to a sister, a mother, a daughter, a lover because you really do care about that person's evaluation of you, about their self-evaluation, about their feelings, and you should. I remember one time I was giving a lecture to an audience of about 500 people, and um, a woman who was in her 80s and sitting up near the front raised her hand, and I said yes, and she said, well, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that love depends on lies. And I said, definitely in part. That's, I mean, if you wanted to sum up everything that I'm saying, that's perhaps not a bad summary. And she said, well, I have a sister, and for years now, we've always only told each other the truth. And I call her, she tells me the truth. I tell her the truth about everything. She calls me, she tells me the truth about everything. I said, well, that's fascinating. And what's your relationship with your sister? And she said, oh, I hate that B word that I can't say on the radio. But And then the whole crowd uh, roared with laughter, and she actually looked confused like she hadn't realized that she, how funny what she had said was. And the fact was that she did have this relationship of animal animosity with her sister and the reason that they had this animosity is they insisted on telling the truth to each other. Can I ask you about the emotional affair because this is something that you bring up in the book and I find it extraordinarily interesting because levels of intimacy and where we meet somebody of whether it's the opposite sex or the same sex and how intimacy breeds that space for unfaithfulness or that space Mm -hmm. for some form of indiscretion. Do you think that is a a, a violation of trust in some way, or is that me being a bit pushy? Well, it's a very interesting question, and it is, again, a place in which I think we need to recognize how careful we have to be, that we need not necessarily insist on honesty, transparency, truthfulness, but what we should be watchful of is ourselves. We should be taking 
take a lot of care. This carefulness, I think, is a much more important moral duty than truthfulness. And what I mean by that is that, of course, anyone who is in a long-term love relationship is going to have over the course of that long-term love relationship. They're going to wind up having crushes of various kinds and other people and maybe brief emotional affairs, which whether or not they result in sexual intercourse, they could be much more intimate. And of course, all of us are threatened more by the thought of our partners being really intimate with someone than we are necessarily by the sexual aspect of that intimacy. So once we recognize that, you know, I know that my wife has crushes of varying degrees on different men that she either may or may not know, and also probably women that she may or may not know. And I have to respect that fact that as a free, fully formed human being, that that's okay. And to give her that space. Now, what I hope is that if an emotional affair actually ever got to the point that it was threatening our marriage, that it was threatening our long-term commitment to always be together. At that point, she would come to me and say, okay, this situation has arisen and I feel like I need to talk to you about it. And this is why, as I also say repeatedly in the book, all of this recognition of the importance of nuance, of the recognition of ambiguity, recognition of the complexity of truth and falsehood, or as you say, of the importance of subjective truth, shouldn't undermine what Adrian Rich tells us about, which is that, you know, at some level, we both have a commitment, if we are going to be intimate with one another, to always kind of try to extend the boundaries of ourselves further and further into exposure of things that we might be frightened to expose. That long-term intimacy does require these kind of experiments of being more and more truthful, of exposing oneself more and more, being bare or open or raw or naked to each other. And um, that's the kind of truthfulness and transparency that I think matters. That's where the importance of subjective truth comes in, that attitude of openness, that attitude of rawness or bareness. Now, Clancy, you talk about how many lies begin as secrets, and I found this fascinating. I think you said something on the lines of 